If you're not in a focus group, just want to real quick while we're getting those things passed out to you, uh, remind you that we've got an excellent Bible um, study that meets second service in the fellowship hall led by Ross and uh, Carol Buchanan. Uh, really would encourage you, if you don't have any time throughout the week, that you would at least carve out some time on the Lord's Day to spend some time face-to-face with brothers and sisters in the Lord uh, so that you can grow, so that you can interact, so that you can ask questions. I know that preaching is an essential part of God's economy for faith. He wants us to be in front of good preaching so that we can hear the Word proclaimed in truth and rightly divided, but He also has a desire for us to be working through the Gospel ourselves, to be opening the Scripture and, and devouring it and understanding what it means and applying it to our lives and that happens really well in the context of a, a smaller group. So if you don't have a focus group, um, we would encourage you to try out Ross's group, Second Service, or my group meets on Tuesdays. We've got a group on Wednesday meeting at the Provence's house. We've got a group on Wednesdays with Jeff Strother. So we've got great options for you. Um, please don't neglect the gathering of the saints. It, it is such a blessing to our lives to be able to come into fellowship under the Word. And so uh, think about those things. I know that life can be busy. Um, but we let ourselves be busy with stuff that doesn't matter a lot of the time. So make sure that you're spending some of your time seeking after the Lord and loving your brothers and sisters at your church as well. So, um, As we get into our word today, I want to share about how about five years ago, my wife and my sons, real thoughtful, they brought me a, uh, bought me a gift for Father's Day. And I was, was really happy to get it. They, they knew that I'm a big fan of oranges. I love just oranges as a snack. It's one of my favorite fruits. And uh, we've got some fruit trees, but they're all lemons. You can't just pick a lemon off the tree and enjoy it for breakfast or something. So they bought me an orange tree, and I thought, what a great gift, right? We can plant it in the backyard. It's going to make the house look beautiful, and it's going to be the gift that keeps on giving, right? Every year, we're going to have a reminder that my sons and my wife love me, and they care about me. And so I was really, really happy. So I went out into the backyard, and I, I got a shovel, and I dug up a nice little patch of ground, softened the dirt so that tree wouldn't have any trouble spreading its roots out and getting into the soil. I, I, I planted that thing in the ground, made sure it was at a place where there's going to be plenty of sun shining on it, made sure to water it. I've been, I've been faithful to this plant, you know, hoping and just waiting for that day when I would get an orange. That was five years ago, and I'm still waiting for that orange. I've got this tree in my backyard that has done nothing but take up room and waste my time and it has not given me a single delicious orange to eat. I'm grateful that I have good friends in the church that have compassion on me and bring me bags of oranges from their overly abundant trees, but it makes me feel a little envious every time I get one of those bags because I've got an orange tree. It just won't do what an orange tree should do. So is a tree really even an orange tree if it doesn't produce oranges, right? I've, uh, I've wondered if maybe it was like some other kind of tree that we accidentally bought, mislabeled at Lowe's or something, but... Nevertheless, we are here today to talk about people, not trees. And this illustration is really here to just show us that as Christians, we are called to be productive. In the way that an orange tree should bear fruit, people who have trusted in Jesus Christ should also be bearing spiritual fruit. Fruit that is beneficial to the kingdom of God, that is sweet to the heart. Fruit that shines the light on God's love and tenderness. The Apostle Paul, as he teaches the Galatian churches in chapter 5 of his letter to them, sees that everyone who has received the saving grace of Jesus Christ is expected to bear this transformational fruit of grace in their lives. There are certain characteristics that flow from a heart that has been made alive, as we sing today, by the redeeming power of the cross. And if those characteristics are not present, 
if we don't see the fruits of the Spirit in one who professes Christ, then it raises serious concerns about the state of that professing believer's heart. And so last week in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21, the Apostle provided us a list of behaviors that characterize the actions of someone who is being led not by the Holy Spirit of God, but being led instead by their flesh, by the earthly desires that used to reign over us before we put our hand into the hand of Christ and trusted Him to lead us. And so, if we are content to bear the same dead and poisonous fruit in our lives that we did before we were saved, then we need to examine ourselves. We need to search our heart and see if the seed of that gospel has really taken root in us. Because a good tree does not bear bad fruit. If our salvation is genuine, then the evidence of that transformation will become apparent. We will bear fruit in keeping with righteousness. And that is where we pick up the text this morning as our journey through the book of Galatians has led us to a very well-known and beloved passage here in chapter 5 concerning the fruit of the Spirit. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be reading chapter 5, verses 22 through 26. Paul writes to his dear friends, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You don't have to have grown up on an orchard to know the basis of how a fruit tree works. It's a pretty simple principle. A fruit tree naturally blossoms when the season is right. Those blossoms develop into fruit. And when the fruit becomes ripe on the branch, we can harvest it and enjoy its natural sweetness and its nutrition. It was a concept that just about everyone who had heard this illustration could understand. But for those, who, those believers who had a Jewish background, the illustration of fruitfulness carried a historical significance with it as well. Throughout the Old Testament, we hear this reference to Israel, the people of God, being like a tree or a vine that is designed by God and saved by Him to bear fruit unto His glory. Isaiah 5, verses 2 through 4, the prophet Isaiah is very critical of Israel's lack of good fruit and declares that as a result of the wicked fruit they are producing, that God, their Father, will for a time cease to nurture and care for that vine. He will allow it to be overgrown and will neglect to feed and water His people. In Hosea 14.6, Israel is given a breath of hope when Hosea prophesies that Israel is like an olive tree that will once again bear good fruit and become profitable to its owners. So the promises to Israel are not in jeopardy in this, but God is very clear that He desires His people to bear good fruit, and when they do not, that there will be chastisement from the Father. The faithful man is described in the very first psalm that we read in the book of Psalms as a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So this illustration, this idea 
of a man being like a tree that bears fruit might have been new to the Gentile believers. It wasn't hard for them to grasp the concept, but for those who had a Hebrew background, it was even more significant because this was a message that had been echoing in the interaction of God with His chosen for generations. This idea of faith showing itself to be real by the virtuous character that it produces in the life of the faithful is an idea that we need to grasp and wrestle with because believing in Jesus Christ is more than just mental exercise. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, there will be change in who you are and how you think and how you interact with other human beings. It will not be an instantaneous change. It will not happen all at the same time. But those whom God has redeemed and made His own, God will affect in such a way that His own holiness will be noticeably reflected in their actions. So as a church, we are not aiming to just make believers here. And that might seem a little bit shocking to you. We as a church want to do more than make just believers. We don't want just people who will say, yes, there is a God out there. I'm going to check that box off. No, we want people who trust in Jesus, who respond to the love of Jesus and His amazing grace to such a degree that it begins to show in their lives. We are here to, according to Matthew 28, 19, make disciples. And that's reflected in our church's mission statement. First Family Church exists to make ordinary people into extraordinary disciples for Jesus Christ, for His glory, for His credit, and for His honor. That is why we are here. And so a true disciple is going to be characterized by the kinds of qualities found on this list in Galatians chapter 5. When we surrender control of our lives to Jesus, He not only washes our sin away, He bestows upon us a powerful gift, the presence of of the Holy Spirit of God from that moment on dwells with us and assists us in this battle that we wage against the flesh. We talked two weeks ago about the, the different verbs that are used to describe this Holy Spirit dwelling with us, that we are to walk in step with the Holy Spirit, that we are to live by the Holy Spirit, that we are to be filled with this Holy Spirit. The list of bad fruit that we looked at two weeks ago was a disorderly mess of selfishness, of thoughtless behavior. But this list describing the virtuous way that a person who is walking in the Spirit should live is a very orderly list. Notice the structure here. There are nine things mentioned by Paul together in sort of a three-by-three three structure. It's not chaotic, it's not disorderly, but beautiful and complementary, harmonious. And it is a representation of the kinds of behavior that rightly represent the mind of the faithful. So look at that list again. It says that we are to display these characteristics. Love joy and peace. We're going to look at those three terms today. Next week we're going to look at patience, kindness, and goodness. And then finally in two weeks we'll look at faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Just as the works of the flesh listed in the preceding passage was not an exhaustive list, it wasn't all the, the terrible sins we should avoid in the flesh, so too is this list not an exhaustive list. We see that um, in the passage that we just read when it says against such things or against characteristics like these, there is no law. So there are other characteristics and you might you know, look at that list and say, yeah, there's some things missing on there that I would expect to be there. That doesn't mean they're not a part of the Christian witness. Things such as hope. Of course, we should be hopeful. It's not necessarily listed here as a fruit of the Spirit, but I believe that it is. 
We should be charitable to others. We should look at those who are in need and try to meet those needs. We should be thankful, right? Isn't that a fruit of the Spirit as well? Have a gratitude towards what God has given to us and what others have done to bless us as well. We should be compassionate to one another, generous with the resources that God has given. So there are many fruits of the Spirit, but these particular nine fruits of the Spirit are are definitely worthy of our attention. This list is not a list of things that you must do to earn God's love. I want us to be very clear on that. If you've been with us throughout this, this exposition of Galatians, you probably are clear on that by now. This is not the new law of the new covenant. Do this and be saved. No, that's not what we're saying here. Rather, the law said, do this and live. But saving grace has said, by the blood of Jesus you have been made alive. Now you will live like this. The effect that Christ has had on our heart and soul will, by its nature, produce in us a difference in the way that we live our lives. So if you're new to trusting Jesus today, you can look forward to beginning to see these characteristics manifest manifest themselves in your day-to-day behavior as you learn to lean on Jesus, as you become more dependent on Him, as you learn more from His Word. If you've been a believer for some time now, examine your hearts. Look at yourself today and see if these things are present in you. Because if these fruits of the Spirit are not there, if you cannot identify love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if these things are not showing up in your day-to-day walk, then you need to be trusting more in this Holy Spirit by which we are called to live our lives, to walk step-in-step with as we serve God here on earth. And so the first fruit we're going to be examining today is the fruit of love. And this Greek term for love here is agape. And most of you have, have heard that term before. Agape is a specific kind of love. It is a godly kind of love. The kind of love that God has given to His own children, the kind of love He desires us to return to Him, and the kind of love that He wants us to selflessly reflect to one another. It is entirely appropriate that the first byproduct of a life redeemed by Christ is mentioned here as love. Because love is foundational to all that the follower of Christ is and all that the follower of Christ does. Think about how important love is to who you are if you belong to Christ. If it was not for love, you would not be in Christ. If it was not for the love of God for His creation, Jesus would not have gone to the cross for you. There was no need for Him to do that. He was holy and perfect and pure and fulfilled without us. But it was godly, selfless love that caused you to become His. We know that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. The second greatest commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, tells us that all of the law hangs on these two commands. See how fundamental love is to all the things that a Christian desires to do in life. In the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gives us perhaps the most historically famous exposition of love that has ever been written. He begins the chapter by explaining that most noble of tasks, if completed without intent to love a person, if it's completed without the motivation of of loving someone else, then they are altogether unprofitable. It doesn't matter how noble your actions are if they are not rooted in love, if they don't flow out of a heart of love and compassion, a love for God and a love for people, then you're wasting your time. 
That means that love should at all times be a driving factor to our desire to live holy and pleasing to God. A man who claims to trust Jesus but shows no evidence of a loving heart may very well be self-deceived. The chapter goes on to render an expanded description of how this agape love is manifested in real and tangible ways. And as I read this familiar passage, I want you to notice how many of the fruit of the Spirit are mentioned in Paul's very description of what love looks like. Look at this passage from 1 Corinthians 13. Verses 4-7 through says, Love is patient. Love is kind. So there we have three already. Love, patience, and kindness are included in this definition of love. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Those sound like commands to be self-controlled, don't they? To hold back what we would want for ourselves if it injures or damages someone else. Verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Because, brothers and sisters, the fruit of the Spirit is characterized by joy as well. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. That sounds like faithfulness to me, doesn't it? This love is so critical to understanding the fruits of the Spirit. So I'm grateful that Paul lists it first. The end of 1 Corinthians 13 declares that the three great Christian virtues remain faith, hope, and love. And then Paul adds an editorial comment there by telling us that the greatest of these is love. Great reformer Martin Luther said in his commentary on the book of Galatians, he said, it would have sufficed to list only love, for this expands into all the fruit of the Spirit. Really, it's almost like the first law. If we love the Lord our God, the right way, then everything else will fall in order. If we love the Lord and, and His people, we don't have, really have to have other laws. But because we don't do those things the way we ought to, God gives us additional laws and commands to clarify and to give us direction and to guide the way that we love one another. But love is truly at the heart of everything that God commands us to do and be. You might ask yourself today, how is it even possible for sinful man to act in, in a loving way, especially according to this agape love that we're learning about today. It's only possible for us to love the way that God loves because God first loved us. To bear the fruit of agape love is to want what is best for someone else, just as God the Father wanted reconciliation and forgiveness for us. To agape love someone is to apply yourself to helping that person attain what is best for them. Just as God the Son gave His life on the cross to overcome our sin. He didn't just sit up in heaven and say, oh, I wish they were faithful. I really wish that they had a right relationship with me. In love, He left His throne on high and came down to dwell with sinful creatures like you and like me. This expression of love was manifest in the body of Christ, which we're going to celebrate in a little while as we take the elements of communion. The gospel is the greatest manifestation of love. Jesus was perfect, but he did not seek his own glory. He was worthy of honor, but he took our shame on himself for our benefit and our blessing. Without his loving act, we would remain dead in sin, but the fruit of agape love in Jesus Christ has given us new life. Before Christ, as lost people, we tried to love, and we see that in the world, that those who don't know Christ 
do want to love. They try to love other people. But we simply thought wrongly about what others needed the most. Remember the right definition of love is to want what is best for somebody else and then to apply yourself to help them attain it. You can only love so, someone so much as you know what is best for them. And it is only by the Holy Spirit that we see that God's relationship is what is best for people. That the best gift that you can give to, to someone else, the best expression of love that you can give is bringing another human being nearer to Jesus Christ. If you think of the actions your life produces right now, is love your primary fruit? And here's, here's an area I want to challenge you in, Christian. We have allowed the opinion of the world to tamper with our idea of love. In so much that we live in a culture today that the highest virtue is often cited as freedom. And so love has become this new thing where to really love somebody is to get out of their way and let them do what they want. You see how passive and uninvolved that is? Love is so much more than just simply not offending anyone and not stepping on their toes or not getting in their way. That's not really love. That's the absence of offense, but it is not love. To love is to engage with other people. To love is to interact with them and to encourage them and spur them on. It is to help them. It is to be near to them. True love will move towards a better community, towards unity with others. The world's love actually brings us farther apart. Because the world's love, this idea of just don't offend me, don't get, don't, don't get in my way, don't tell me how to think or believe, don't really affect me, means you stay there and I'll be here and we'll all be happy. It's not love. That's loneliness. That's isolation. Are you producing a loving kindness towards others that urges them to Jesus, that encourages them with His truth? If agape love is not evident in the way that you live, why is it absent? Why is it lacking? What is keeping you from loving the way that Christ has loved you to Him? How can we really, think about this, how can we not grow in love for others if we are spending substantial time with the greatest lover in existence? If our lives and the, the way we spend our time and attention, if our affections are geared towards Christ and we are seeking Him, I think it will be near impossible for us to not become more loving people. If your eyes are constantly on the generous work of Jesus, if you watch the ways that He lovingly came alongside others and cared for them, the ways that He ate with sinners and gave His time to those who everybody else had rejected. If you look at the, the ways that He had compassion on their suffering and, and gave Himself to their healing, if we spend all of our time around the most influential single human being in, in the history of the world, how can we not be influenced to love more? So if my life is not characterized by love and I call myself a Christian, there's a good chance that I'm not spending enough time with Jesus Christ. I am not exposing myself to the powerful testimony of His life. I'm doing a lot of things. Some of them might even sound religious and holy, but if I am not dwelling with Jesus and seeking Him regularly and being impressed by His perfect character, then I'm not being impacted by it. We are told here by Paul that there is no law against love. I love this fruits of the Spirit because he's saying, you want to be free? Here's how to be free. God's always going to be on the throne. There's always going to be Him to reckon to. So here's what you do. You live according to His will. 
live in a loving way. There's no law against that. There is a law against false loves. So that's why definitions become important, right? You might, might hear this say, oh, there's no law against love? Well, let's go back to the 60s, to the free love era, and we can love any way we want to. No, 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 let's, let's pump the brakes for a minute here. There are many twisted, perverted, corrupted expressions of what the world calls love today. And there are laws against that kind of love, aren't there? God does not want us to destroy ourselves with poisonous love, with false loves. When we worship things that don't deserve worship, that's called idolatry. That's not real love. That's obsession. That's distraction. And it's damaging to us. It hurts our relationship with the Lord if we give worshipful love to anything, no matter how noble it may seem, if we give worshipful love to anything other than Jesus Christ. Covetous love, where we're trying to pursue somebody who doesn't belong to us, who is married to another. Or we're constantly wishing that our spouse was just like somebody else's spouse. That's covetous love. That's, that's not contentment with what God has given and rejoicing grateful heart that says, thank you, Lord, for providing for me. That's a kind of love that is not really love at all. It's an envy. It's the root of sin. Dominating love, where we love something so much we're obsessed by it, we feel compelled to control it all the time. That is not real love. That is an error. God is the one who judges and controls, and he does it perfectly. But there are many ways that we can take this beautiful characteristic of love and pervert it and take it to directions we don't, God doesn't want us to take it. There is no law, however, against true love, which wants what is best for someone else. What's best for someone else, friends, is always the thing that God wants for that someone. So what might be hindering us from bearing the fruit of love in our lives. Let me give you a couple of quick suggestions. We've already talked about being distant from Jesus. If you're not spending time with Jesus in prayer and looking at His life through His Word, then you are probably not growing in love. But there are some other things that can keep you from loving, a loving characteristic. Perhaps your tree is sick with selfishness. When I am wrapped up in me, when my main focus is me. I'm concerned about my future and my financial well-being. I'm concerned with making sure that I get things my way, that I am comfortable, and that other people are adjusting their lifestyles to suit my desires and my whim. If I'm focused on me, I am not serving you. If I am looking at my own life all the time, then I am very unlikely to see the needs of the people around me and then step up to meet them according to the Holy Spirit. I'm not praying for you. I'm not encouraging or challenging you. Selfishness produces the fruit of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. So heed the words of our Savior Jesus Christ who calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after Him daily. Your life will suddenly become happier if you learn to not put so much focus on yourself because selfishness does not lead to contentment. So selfishness may be keeping us from the love that God has called us to. And another possibility, perhaps you haven't come to terms with your own personal sin. God is loving in the way that He calls out our error. Now, the human sinful nature in us doesn't think that's so. We want our sin to be unnoticed by anyone else. We don't like to be challenged. We don't like to be embarrassed about our failures. But your God loves you. And He does not want you to continue on in that which can destroy you and hurt you and hurt the relationships around you. 
So if you are struggling with love, is it possible that maybe you're actually struggling with some kind of sin that is keeping you from really clinging to Christ in such a way that your sin will be brought into the light? If you're not clinging to Christ, guess what? You're not able to love the way that God has called you to love. So that's part of the reason why we pray regularly here, guys, when we come together, that God would reveal in us our sin. Not because we want to be just a bunch of guilty and downtrodden people, but because that sin needs to be defeated. And we have a freedom and victory in Jesus Christ. And so we want Christ to bring that freedom and victory to us through the truth of His Word. So let us be a people of love. The second fruit of the Spirit that is mentioned here is joy. And in the, in the Greek, this is kara, kara. To be sure, the gospel message has a seriousness to it, doesn't it? When you come in here on Sundays, you know that we're going to talk about sin. You know that we're going to talk about how far we fall from the Lord God naturally. We don't see our need for redemption unless we talk about it. We can't enjoy new life until a perfect uh, life is sacrificed for us. And so we talk about blood and death because life is in the blood and sacrifice has been made for us to be new. There's a seriousness to that, isn't it? You know, we watched uh, in our Sunday evening um, gathering last week, we were watching uh, this American Gospel documentary, and they showed how much the Gospel has been turned into a circus in some churches. Well, you got people doing burnouts on the stage with motorcycles, and pastors ziplining into the stage to try to quench that insatiable thirst for entertainment that people have, thinking that if we can just make people happier, then they'll come to church and they'll love Jesus. But church is not about entertainment, friends. We've got to be serious about these things. We're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about tickling our ears and, and making people feel good about themselves all the time. We're talking about life or death. And not just here on earth, but for eternity. So there is a gravity to the gospel. There's a seriousness that we cannot deny and that we have to have reverence for. But that doesn't mean that the life led by the Holy Spirit cannot be a life of joy. In fact, in view of the miracle of salvation, it must be a life of joy. How can it be anything but a life of joy when we've come to know the truth of salvation? That we were on a trajectory for destruction. That the right judgment of God was bearing down on us. We had committed sin against the one ruler of the universe who is all-powerful and will never be deceived and he was going to rightfully punish us for eternity and then something happened. In his love, Jesus Christ, his son, broke into that tragedy and brought redemption. How can we not be joyful about that? The joy of being redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ should overpower whatever hardships we encounter. And I'm not trying to be insensitive here because I know that hardship is real. And when we go through tough things in life, we will weep together, friends. We will mourn together. We will feel hurt and pain. But in time, as we remember the things that we are going to remember today in the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, we think about the cross and we think about the victory that God has redeemed and our sadness will become lighter. And the joy of who we are now in Christ will overpower the heartache that we have when we think about what we don't get in this life. We think about the blessings that others have that we do not have. We think about the trials we have to go through. The joy of Christ can overpower all of that. And so you probably have heard from time to time 
that joy is different than happiness. And is that true? In, in some ways it is, but it all depends on how you're defining things, right? Joy in a biblical sense, the kind of joy that we are putting our attention on and setting our target on today is more closely related to contentment than it is to the circumstantial happiness that the world is trying to sell to us day in and day out. And that's why in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, James tells us to count it all joy, not just when God keeps His many blessings upon us, but when we encounter various trials. Consider it joy when you struggle. Consider it joy when you suffer. If joy is just this kind of happiness you feel when someone's doing a donut with a, with a dirt bike on the stage, oh, that's entertaining, that's fun. If that's joy, th then we're missing the boat. Because here, James is telling us you can have joy even if you're struggling. Even if you're suffering on account of your faith, God can lift your heart and steady your head. The common worldly understanding of joy is illustrated well in the wise tale of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Right? You've, got, you've got Goldilocks and she wanders into a home in the forest and she finds a, 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 a porridge, right? One of the porridges is, oh, it's too hot. Another porridge is too cold. But this one is just right. It's just the way I like it. And she goes to a chair and one is too stiff and one's too soft and one is just right, just the way I like it. And she finds a bed upstairs and one is, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's too hard on her back and the other one is it just keeps down in the middle. But the other one is just how she likes it. And that is the attitude that human beings have towards happiness and joy. They think that it has to be just what they want for them to be satisfied. Compare that to Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, where the Apostle Paul says, Friends, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. Whether the Lord takes away from me or whether He gives me an abundance, I have learned to be content. There is so much joy in that. And not falling for the lie that you're going to need X, Y, and Z product in order to put a smile on your face. You have Christ. And He has given you all that you need. He has fulfilled your desires by giving you Himself. Biblical joy is founded on a transcendent and unchanging God. So biblical joy can be experienced in the midst of circumstantial suffering. I see that these circumstances are not favorable. I look at my life and I think, man, I'm sick. And I don't have enough money and I've lost some people that were dear to me, but I'm able to overcome this because despite all of it, God is still good. And I am the personal benefactor of so many promises and blessings from Him. In comparison to the first evaluation that life is, is hard and difficult, the second matters infinitely more. My eternity is secure. My God, who is my true judge, is pleased in me because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to my heart. He doesn't look down and see my failure. He sees the glory of His Son. My Savior is more powerful than my suffering. And when our perspective is right and we see both the glory of God and the suffering He's called us to endure, the glory is going to overshadow the suffering. There is a thrill in joy, though. It's not just, it's not just a stoic academic knowledge that God is good. There is excitement in knowing that God has called you to His kingdom. As John MacArthur, one of my favorite pastors, describes as joy as he describes joy as the exhilaration of the heart that comes from being right with God. It's almost like if you've ever um, if you've ever been crossing the street and you take a step and you didn't even realize that a car just zooms past you and you're like, whoa, I, I was almost roadkill just two seconds ago. 
and your heart is racing and there's a thrill there because God has been merciful to you. Well, on a grander scale, you are going to get run down by justice because of the sin that you had committed against God and His kingdom. And yet He has rescued you out of that fate and brought you instead to a banquet where you can celebrate with Him and be a part of His family. There's a thrill in that, friends. There is, there is a satisfaction and a joy that rises up in us when we think about how good it is to be known by God and to be called His friend. I, I do want to take a moment to, to acknowledge that some are suffering from clinical depression. Some people really struggle with natural joy. If I'm depressed, if I have some disorder that keeps me from, from easily smiling or from being content, am I constantly in sin for failing to have joy? Not if you recognize that joy is not simply an emotion. The thing that depression often robs from us is that feeling of, 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 of niceness, that feeling that life is going to be good. Joy is a reality, not just emotion. So through the powerful testimony of the Word, you can battle your depression. Through the fellowship of the saints, God has given you tools to fight against whatever chemical imbalance you might have. Come near to your brothers and sisters in Christ and hear their voice as they, in right mind, tell you what is true, that God loves you, He has redeemed you, you belong to Him, and that though you may struggle and suffer, that is what we all do, and that together, underneath the authority of the Word, we're going to fight through this as one. There is a great peace and unity that can be had in the unchanging truth of God's Word that de depression would love to rob from you. But even if that is something that you struggle with, don't, don't let the enemy think that you are doomed simply because joy does not come really easily to you by your nature. 2 Corinthians 1 verses 23 through 24 can be an encouragement to you. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming against, uh, again to Corinth. This is the Apostle Paul. He has admonished them for some things that they did. And he was going to visit them, but he decided not to. And it says in verse 24, Not that we lord over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So what the Apostle Paul is, is, is recognizing here is that the church is so essential to our good walk with the Lord because the church is working with you to stand in your faith. And the times when you wander, the, the church helps you to come back. It is your belonging. It is your family that cares for you and encourages you. When you can't see the light of the gospel, when you feel like you are enshrouded in darkness, then draw near to your brothers and sisters who bear that light. Call them. Reach out to them. And brothers and sisters, if you know those who are depressed and down around you, then don't let them stay that way. Seek to love them with the love of Christ. Truly reach out and be there for them. Pray for them. Point them to Scripture, which will not let them down. Together we can experience the joy that God has ordained for us. Our capacity for joy is undeniably linked to our ability to remember the gift of the cross. And so in just a short while, we're going to be participating in the Lord's table. And this sacrament helps to preserve our joy. If we keep the work of the cross before us and are faithful to remember what an incredible gift it was for Jesus to give His spotless life as an offering for our sin on our behalf, then it is much easier to see our affliction and poor circumstances as the small things that they really are, as the temporary discomfort that will one day be put aside forever when we enter into His glory. Not only is there no law against joy, there is no contender to her either. 
with Victor or with Christ as our, our victor, we, we need to allow the circumstances of life, however dire they may seem, uh, to fade away in light of the glory of God. We cannot allow them to rob us of the contentment that we have in our Lord. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2, illustrates another truth to us. That joy is linked with hope. It says in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, there's that fellowship of the church again, that togetherness that increases our joy. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, for whom the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, remember that verse when the hill seems too steep. When you are called to walk through a season of suffering and it just feels like you can't take another step, Christ was faced with a very similar dilemma in the Garden of Gethsemane when He prayed to the Father and asked, if there is any other way, would you please remove this cup from me? What caused Him to continue on? A couple of things. First of all, the Son and the Father are one. They are completely unified in what they desire to do. So the Father's desire to redeem came to the Son's Father uh, desire to redeem. and he, he needed to go forward in His Father's will. But there's also, you see here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that there was a joy set before Him. That there was a hopefulness. That He was not suffering for nothing. That He was moving towards something great. And so to suffer for a short time was worth it to redeem those who would be infinitely more joyful by the sacrifice that He made. So if you're brokenhearted, remember Christ. Behold the knowledge that He has set before you You may be pressed, but you are not crushed. You may be persecuted, but you are not abandoned. You may be pressed down, but you have not been destroyed. Because the love of God belongs to you. The one who walks by the Holy Spirit has learned to enjoy God more than the circumstances of the world. Now I am surveying peace. And I'm thinking it might be best for us to keep that for next week because I've got a lot to say about that and we still want to give proper time to the Lord's table. And so um, at this time I want us to stop and really think about what God has called us to as we enjoy each first Sunday of the month uh, this wonderful sacrament which reminds us of the cross and points us to the work that Jesus did. And we will pick up with peace next week.